This is The Churches the World, Chapter 2, Episode 10, The Tower in Babel. Last week, I wrapped up the biblical flood story, and this week, I'm jumping off into the Tower in Babel, as well as what is generally referred to as the confusion of tongues. I realize that I'm skipping over Canaan, the first mention of Egypt, Assyria, and numerous others. They will be covered in the near future. Instead, and awkwardly embedded in the middle of the list of Noah's descendants, is a curious little story about man's continued streak of disobedience and how God dealt with it while maintaining the promise of the Noahic covenant. It's short enough and frequently misunderstood that I'll just recite the whole thing from the New Revised Standard Version before starting. It begins in Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as they migrated from the east, they came upon a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city, and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, Otherwise, we shall be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which mortals had built. And the Lord said, Look, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language there, so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth. Now you'll notice that there were a few things that are not present. Where was the tower? How tall was the tower? Was it destroyed? What was this common language that they spoke? Who was the us God was referring to? That last question is a bit too theological, and I'll leave the answer up to you. According to the story, a united civilization, some unspecified time after the Great Flood, spoke a single language and migrated from the east to the land of Shinar. In Shinar, they built a city and a tower. Overall, the story is light on details. It is never said who led them, But we do find out that the tower was not made from stone, but from either sun or oven-baked bricks, perhaps both. And for mortar, they used butamen. They were motivated by the hope to unite their people, or else they would scatter to the corners of the earth. Upon seeing this, God said if they were capable of such a task, there would be nothing that they would be incapable of. So he, and perhaps others, confused their language and scattered them all over the globe. This story helps to explain two great mysteries of human history. First, how did man come to live on six of the seven continents? And second, how did the multitude of languages develop? It's a short but complex story, so I'll work through the details bit by bit. First things first, where was Shinar? No one is exactly certain where Shinar was geographically located, but the general consensus is that it was in Mesopotamia. The name itself may be a distortion of the Hebrew phrase Shene Neherot, meaning two rivers, 
or the Hebrew Shinei Arim, meaning two cities. The name Shinar occurs eight times in the Old Testament, where it generally refers to Babylonia. This location of Shinar is evident from its description as encompassing both the city of Babylon in northern Babylonia and Uruk in southern Babylonia. In Genesis chapter 10, verse 10, the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom is said to have been from Babylon and Uruk and Akkad and Chelna in the land of Shinar. Chapter 11, verse 2 states that Shinar enclosed the plain that became the site of the Tower of Babel after the Great Flood. After the flood, the sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth had stayed first in the highlands of Armenia and then migrated to Shinar. In Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 and 9, King Amraphel rules Shinar. Shinar is further mentioned in Joshua 7.21, Isaiah 11.11, Daniel 1.2, and Zechariah 5.11 as a general synonym for Babylonia. But remember that while Babylon was a city, Babylonia is a general region in Mesopotamia. If you will recall from last week, there is the Book of Jubilees. Only the Ethiopian Orthodox Church recognizes this book as canonical, while most Western churches question its authenticity. Jubilees chapter 10 states that the Tower of Babel was built with butamen from the Sea of Shinar. Based partly on this, some researchers have theorized that the tower was actually located in Eridu, which was once located on the Persian Gulf, where there are ruins of a massive ancient structure built from butamen. In case you didn't know, and I didn't know this until I looked it up, but butamen is a form of asphalt. And of course, asphalt is a derivative of oil, and we all know that the Persian Gulf is rich in oil. The Tower of Babel has been associated with known structures, according to some modern scholars, primarily ziggurats in Mesopotamia. Okay, so what is a ziggurat? Spelled Z-I-G-G-U-R-A-T. Ziggurats were massive structures built in the area surrounding the ancient Mesopotamian valley. They were formed in the shape of a terraced step pyramid of successively receding stories or levels. Ziggurats were built by the Sumerians, Babylonians, Elamites, Akkadians, and Assyrians for their local religions. Each ziggurat was part of a temple complex, which included other buildings. The earliest ziggurats began near the end of the early dynastic period from about 2900 to 2350 BC. The last ones built in Mesopotamia date from about the 6th century BC. They were built in receding tiers upon a rectangular, oval, or square platform with a flat top. Sun-baked bricks made up the inner core of the ziggurat, with the outer bricks being oven-fired. The facings were often glazed in different colors. The local king sometimes had his name engraved on these glazed bricks. The number of tiers ranged from two to seven. Well-known ziggurats include the Great Ziggurat of Ur, near present-day Nasrsira, Iraq. There's also the Ziggurat of Akor Kuf near Baghdad, Iraq, and the now-destroyed Etamantiki in Babylon, thought by some to be the actual Tower of Babel. The Etamantiki Ziggurat of ancient Babylon was exceedingly massive, it is estimated to have been 300 feet or 91 meters tall. Unfortunately, not much is left of it, not even its foundation. Yet archaeological findings and historical accounts estimate it to have been seven tiers tall, topped with a temple of great proportions. 
The temple is thought to have been painted and maintained in an indigo color, matching the top few tiers. It is known that there were three staircases leading to the temple, with two on the sides of which ascended half the ziggurat's height. Etamenaki, the name for the structure, is Sumerian and means Temple of the Foundation Between Heaven and Earth. The date of its original construction is unknown, with possible dates ranging from the 14th to 9th century BC, with textual evidence suggesting it existed in the second millennium. Etamaniki was rebuilt by the 6th century BC Neo-Babylonian dynasty rulers Nabopolassar and Nebuchadnezzar II. Remember that this was also the time of the Babylonian captivity of the Hebrews. King Nebuchadnezzar wrote that the original tower had been built in antiquity, stating that, and this is a quote, A former king built the temple of the seven lights of the earth, but he did not complete its head, end quote. The reference of seven lights may refer to its seven tiers. He continued, Since a remote time, people had abandoned it, without order expressing their words. Since that time, earthquakes and lightning had dispersed its sun-dried clay. The bricks of the casing had split, and the earth of the interior had scattered in heaps. End quote. One of the other ziggurats, the decaying Great Ziggurat of Babylon, was finally destroyed by Alexander the Great around 331 BC, in order to prepare for its reconstruction, he managed to move the tiles of the tower to another location. But his untimely death stopped the reconstruction efforts. Millenniums of erosion have usually reduced the surviving ziggurats to a fraction of their original height. One of the best preserved ziggurats is the Chaga Zambil in western Iran, near the border with Iraq. It was built around 1250 BC and abandoned about 600 years later. The Sayok Ziggurat in Kashan, Iran, is the oldest known ziggurat, dating to the early 3rd millennium BC. Ziggurat designs range from simple bases upon which a temple sat, to marvels of mathematics and construction, which span several terrace stories. Isaac Asimov, yes, that Isaac Asimov, speculated in his book, Asimov's Guide to the Bible, that the authors of Genesis were inspired by the existence of an apparently incomplete ziggurat at Babylon, and by the mistaken etymological association whereby, quoting, the writers of Genesis derived Babel from the Hebrew word bala, meaning mixed, confused, or confounded, end quote. Another item missing in the biblical story is the phrase Tower of Babel. Instead, it is always referred to as the city and its tower. The story of the Tower of Babel explains the confusion of tongues, or in modern English, the variation in human language. The story's theme of competition between God and humans appears elsewhere in Genesis, such as the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The Jewish interpretation of first-century Roman Jewish author Flavius Josephus explained the construction of the tower as a Hebrewistic act of defiance against God ordered by the arrogant tyrant Nimrod. There have, however, been some contemporary challenges to this classical interpretation with emphasis placed on the explicit motive of cultural and linguistic homogeneity mentioned in the narrative. This reading of the text sees God's actions not as punishment for pride, but as a source of cultural differences, presenting Babel as the cradle of civilization. I'll dive deeper into the confusion of tongues next week, as well as the theories on the origin of languages. Genesis chapter 10 verse 10 states that Babel formed part of Nimrod's kingdom. Nimrod was the son of Cush and the great-grandson of Noah. The Bible does not specifically mention that Nimrod ordered the building of the tower, but many other sources have associated its construction with Nimrod. 
Genesis chapter 11 verse 9 attributes the Hebrew version of the name Babel to the verb Balal, which means to confuse or to confound in Hebrew. Flavius Josephus similarly explained that the name was derived from the Hebrew word Babel, which means confusion. The Greek form of the name in the Septuagint, Babylon, is from the native Akkadian Babylon, meaning gate of the gods. Genesis chapter 11 verses 8 and 9 state that God scattered the descendants of Noah, listed in chapter 10 of Genesis in the table of nations, over the face of the earth. It also implied that the city was abandoned. Some see an internal contradiction between the earlier mention in Genesis chapter 10 verse 5 that, quoting, from these maritime peoples spread out into their territories by their clans within their nations, each with his own language, end quote. In the subsequent Babel story, which begins, Now the entire earth was of one language in uniform words. In Genesis chapter 11 verse 1. However, this view assumes an inflexible chronological sequence of 10.5 and 11.1, whereas the traditional Judeo-Christian interpretation holds that 10.5 refers to the same scattering of people mentioned more fully in 11.1. An alternative resolution to the apparent contradictory material of Genesis 10.5 and 11.8 and 9 comes from the documentary hypothesis, which suggests different sources for those verses. Biblical scholars holding to the hypothetical four-source origins of Genesis, the so-called JEPD, regard 10.5 as coming from the priestly text source, the P in the JEPD, and 11.8-9 and actually the entirety of the Babel narrative as from the Yahweh's source the J and the J-E-P-D. The account in Genesis makes no mention of the tower being destroyed. The people whose languages are confounded were simply scattered from there over the face of the earth and stopped building their city. However, in other sources, such as the Book of Jubilees, God overturns the tower with a great wind. In the Midrash, an ancient Judaic explanation of the Torah, it is said that the top of the tower was burnt, the bottom was swallowed, and the middle was left standing to erode over time. Given some of the other accounts, this could mean that the top was struck by lightning and the bottom was swallowed by the desert sands. I'll have more from Jubilees in a minute. The Book of Jubilees contains one of the most detailed accounts found anywhere of the tower. It states, And they began to build, and in the fourth week they made brick with fire. And the bricks served them for stone. And the clay with which they cemented them together was asphalt, which comes out of the sea, and out of the fountains of water in the land of Shinar. The last part of that phrase is actually very interesting, because I would imagine the asphalt coming out of the fountains of water in the land of Shinar isn't that much different than the oil we get from the same area today. And in regards to that oil, if they only knew how much more valuable we would consider it to be today. The book also states that the tower took 43 years to build. The previously mentioned Flavius Josephus, in his Antiquities of the Jews, written around 94 AD, recounted history as found in the Hebrew Bible, and mentioned the Tower of Babel. He wrote that it was Nimrod who had the tower built. Josephus went on to state that it was Nimrod who provoked the people against God. According to Josephus, he was a bold man and of great strength. He persuaded the people that God wasn't the reason for their happiness, but to believe that it was their own courage which caused that happiness. He also gradually changed the government to be that of tyranny, believing that there was no other way of turning men from the fear of God but to bring them into a constant dependence on his own power. With all of this, the people began to follow Nimrod. They also began to believe that it was weakness that caused people to submit to God. 
At the same time, they built a tower, not sparing any pain, nor being in any degree negligent about the work. And because so many were involved, it grew very high very quickly. It was built of burnt brick, cemented together with mortar, once again made of bitumen, so that it was watertight. When God saw that they acted so intensely, He did not resolve to completely destroy them, since even a cataclysmic flood had not caused them to become godly. But He caused confusion among them by producing diverse languages and causing that, through the multitude of those languages, that they should not be able to communicate. Once again, according to Josephus, the place where they built the tower is now called Babylon because of the confusion of that prior language. In the Hebrew language, the word Babel means confusion. Josephus's source for most of this is very unclear. So those of you in the U.S. may be thinking, that's not the first time I've heard the name Nimrod. And you're right. While in most English-speaking countries, the word Nimrod is used to refer to a hunter or warrior, in the U.S. it actually refers to a dim-witted person. Most etymologists, yes, and there are people who research the origin of words, believe it or not, they think it's due to Bugs Bunny referring to Elmer Fudd as a poor little Nimrod. But there is an alternative explanation, and that is John Steinbeck in his book, travels with Charlie in search of America. Going a little deeper, the Oxford English Dictionary cites a 1933 writing as the first usage of Nimrod to refer to a fool. That predates Bugs Bunny by at least five years, and it also predates John Steinbeck by nearly 30. One more possible source for the derogatory usage of Nimrod comes from the play The Lion of the West by James Paulding. It was first performed in 1831 and features a comedic characterization of Davy Crockett named Colonel Nimrod Wildfire. So overall, that's probably the source for the derogatory usage of the word Nimrod, which is the meaning most Americans would associate with the word, not with the great-grandson of Noah. In Islam, the story is not specifically referenced, but the Quran has a story with similarities to the biblical story, although it is set in Egypt during the time of Moses. The Pharaoh asks Haman to build him a stone tower so that he can go up to heaven and confront the God of Moses. Another story in the Quran mentions the name of Babel, but this story tells of when two angels, Herod and Merit, taught magic to a few people in Babylon and warned them that magic is a sin and that their teaching them magic was a test of faith. There is a Sumerian myth similar to that of the Tower of Babel called Enmerkar and the Lord of Erita. In this story, Enmakar of Uruk is building a massive ziggurat in Eridu and demands a tribute of precious metals from Erita for its construction. At one point, he recites an incantation imploring the god Enki to restore, or in a different translation, to disrupt the linguistic unity of the inhabited regions. Still another story, attributed to the Toahona Adham people of what is now eastern Arizona and northwestern Mexico, told that Montezuma escaped a great flood, then became wicked and attempted to build a house reaching to heaven. But the great spirit destroyed it with thunderbolts. According to David Livingstone, better known, I presume, as Dr. Livingstone, the Africans whom he met living near Lake Gami in 1849 had such a tradition, but with the builders' heads getting cracked by the falling of scaffolding. These people lived in what is now the country of Botswana in southern Africa. Scottish social anthropologist Sir James George Fraser 
in his 1918 book titled Folklore in the Old Testament, documented similarities between the Old Testament stories, such as the Flood, and indigenous legends around the world. He identified Livingstone's account with a tale found in Lozai mythology, wherein the wicked men build a tower of mast to pursue the creator god, Nyambi, who has fled to heaven on a spider web, but the men perish when the mast collapse. The Lozai live in south-central Africa, primarily in what is now the country of Tanzania. Fraser also told of the Ashanti people, who live in the present-day country of Ghana on the western coast of Africa. Their tradition was that the god of old dwelt among men, but that one day he was insulted by an old woman, and he withdrew to his mansion in the sky. Man was sad with his departure, and resolved to seek and find him. For that purpose, they collected all the porridge pestles they could find and piled them up, one on top of the other. To me, this seems like a very unusual construction material, and as you might suspect, a porridge pestle is simply an instrument to grind oats. When the tower they had built had nearly reached the sky, they found to their dismay that the supply of pestles ran short. What were they to do? In this dilemma, a man said to be wise stood up and said, The matter is quite simple. Take the lowest pestle of all and put it on the top, and go on doing so till we arrive at God. The proposal was approved, but when they came to put it in practice, the tower fell, as you would probably expect. However, others that retell the story say that the collapse of the tower was caused by the white ants, which gnawed away the lowest of the pestles. In whichever way it happened, the communication with heaven was not completed, and the men were never able to ascend up to God. Fraser cites other stories among the Congo people in Tanzania, where the men stack poles or trees in a failed attempt to reach the moon. This one confounds me a bit, as the moon is not stationary, but maybe they plan to jump on the orb as it passed. The book of Genesis does not mention how tall the tower was. Chapter 11, verse 4 merely states that it was a tower with its top in the heavens, meaning I suspect the sky. I believe that this is quite simply an idiom for an impressive height. But the tower's height is discussed in various extra-canonical sources. The book of Jubilees mentions that its width was 203 bricks, and the height of the brick was one-third of the width. The total height of the tower amounted to 5,433 cubits plus two palms, and the extent of one wall was 13 stades, and of the other, 30 stades. When I first read that, I knew a cubit was about a foot and a half, so that meant that the height was 8,100 feet, or about 2,500 meters. That's about 1.6 miles high. I trust that those of you who use the metric system can convert the 2,500 meters to kilometers. For reference, currently the tallest building in the world is the Burj Khalifa in Dubai at 2,700 feet or 823 meters. So based on the Book of Jubilees, the Tower of Babel would have been over three times that height. Also for reference, a palm is the width of a human hand about 3 inches or 7.6 centimeters. Now, besides the extreme height given in Jubilees, the exact measurement of that height is quite fascinating. A stade was a Greek measurement of distance, but the exact length of a single stade is a topic of much debate. It is generally thought to be between 515 and 686 feet, or between 157 and 209 meters. Therefore, the width of one side was between 6,700 and 8,900 feet, or between 2,050 and 2,700 meters. The longer side was between 15,500 and 20,500 feet, or about 4,700 to 6,250 meters. If you've listened to the prior podcast, 
you've learned that I like to put physical measurements into an understandable context. And it took me a while to figure out a modern-day equivalent to a structure with that footprint, but I eventually did. Those measurements are about the same size as Atlanta, Georgia's International Airport, the busiest airport in the world, including all five of its 10,000-foot runways. That footprint would have been gigantic. The Third Apocalypse of Baruch mentions that what it termed the Tower of Strife reached a height of 463 cubits, equating to 700 feet or 212 meters. This would have made it taller than any structure built in human history until the construction of the Eiffel Tower in 1889, which would have beat the Tower of Strife by 360 feet or 112 meters. The Third Apocalypse, sometimes called the Greek Apocalypse of Baruch, is a Jewish pseudopigraphica text, thought to have been written perhaps as late as the 3rd century AD. I can't believe I used that word again, and so soon. It was definitely written after the fall of Jerusalem to the Romans in 70 AD. It is, probably incorrectly, attributed to the 6th century BC scribe of Jeremiah named Baruch ben Neriah. This book is not part of the biblical canon of either Jews or Christians, but it survives in certain Greek manuscripts and also in a few Old Church Slavonic ones. In its text, the builders of the Tower of Strife are described in terms that could be regarded as demonic. They have the faces of cattle, horns of sheep, and feet of goats. Their masters, who command them to build the tower, are punished eternally in a separate heaven where they are reincarnated in the form of dogs, bears, or apes. In my opinion, that does not sound like a separate heaven, but of a different place, a little bit further underground. Gregory of Tours, which is located in present-day France, in the latter portion of the 6th century AD, quoted Orosius from the area of present-day Portugal, who wrote in the early part of the 5th century that the tower was designed four-square on a very level plain. Its wall, made of baked brick cemented with pitch, is 50 cubits wide, 200 high, and 470 stades in circumference. This put the dimensions as 75 feet, or 23 meters, on each of the four sides, and 300 feet, or 91 meters tall. Compared to the others, this seems rather small, but because of this, it also seems more believable. On the other end of the spectrum is the account given by Giovanni Valeni, an Italian historian in the 14th century. He claimed that the tower was 80 miles, or 129 kilometers, in circumference. He also claimed it was 4,000 paces high, with each pace being about 3 feet. This equates to a height of about 2.3 miles, or 3.7 kilometers. Not to be outdone, the 14th century traveler and writer John Mandeville claimed that the tower was 64 furlongs tall, which was 8 miles, or 13 kilometers. He claimed to have acquired this dimension from the local inhabitants. It seems like, at that height, he should not have had to inquire, but should have been able to see it himself. The 17th century English historian Richard Vestergen provided yet another figure, quoting Isadora of Seville in the 6th century, who said the tower was 5,164 paces high, which is 2.9 miles or 4.7 kilometers. He also quoted Josephus that the tower was wider than it was high, more like a mountain than a tower. He went on to quote unnamed sources, who said that the spiral path up the tower was so wide that it contained lodgings for workers and animals, and other authors who claimed that the path was wide enough to have fields for growing grain for the animals used in the construction. 
So all of these estimates of the tower's height range from 300 feet or 91 meters on the low side to 8 miles or 13 kilometers on the high. To me, the 300-foot figure is believable, as it's about 155 feet shorter than the Great Pyramid of Giza. That height was certainly within their technological grasp, but the 8-mile figure is absolutely ludicrous. First, it must be remembered that the tower was not built with the assistance of God, but in opposition to Him. So any divine support to obtain a great height is out the window. But even if they could engineer it, they were not biologically capable of building it. An 8-mile-tall tower, assuming the base was at sea level, is roughly 13,000 feet or 4,100 meters taller than Mount Everest. There is hardly enough oxygen on the top of Everest to support someone walking, let alone building. 2.5 miles taller would prove to be instantly fatal. In his book, Structures Are Why Things Don't Fall Down, from the late 20th century, Professor J.E. Gordon, who was educated at the University of Glasgow, explores the height of the Tower of Babel. He wrote that brick and stone weigh about 120 pounds per cubic foot, or 2,000 kilograms per cubic meter. The crushing strength of these materials is generally better than 6,000 pounds per square inch, or 40 megapascals. Simple arithmetic shows that a tower with parallel walls could have been built to a height of 1.3 miles, or 2.1 kilometers, before the bricks at the bottom were crushed. However, by making the walls taper towards the top, similar to a pyramid, they could have well have built to a much greater height. So, overall, it would be possible to build a tower of 1.3 miles, perhaps even more, but there's no proof that they ever really did. So that's the episode for this week. Join me next week when I'll continue with the Babel story, digging into the confusing of tongues and similar stories from elsewhere. I'll also dive into the scientific understanding of the origin of language. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at thechurchestheworld.com. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at thechurchestheworld.com. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase The Church is the World as four separate words. Thanks for listening, and have a great week. 